Hello and welcome back for another edition of the Northern Agenda podcast, the politics podcast that's for the north of England and from the north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds, who writes a daily politics newsletter looking at the big political issues facing our region. Since our episode last week, we've had a speech from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to the Tory faithful in Doncaster, which within hours was eclipsed by the spectacular resignation of his old boss Boris Johnson and a huge row about which of his allies are getting knighthoods and peerages. Nadine Dorries won't be getting one and is so angry she quit on the spot as an MP and wrote a scathing op-ed about what she described as the sinister forces that stopped me, a girl born in poverty in Liverpool, from reaching the House of Lords. Nigel Adams, a North Yorkshire Tory MP and Boris Backer, has also quit Parliament after being denied a peerage, leaving Rishi Sunak with a by-election headache. It's also emerged this week that unemployment in the North East, for so long the worst in the country, is now at its lowest level since records began, with 50,000 more jobs in the region than a year ago. And this week on the podcast, we've got a great guest to give us an expert perspective on what's going on under the bonnet of the North's economy. Simon Trench, who grew up in Hull and is now the chief economist and investment bank Panmure Gordon, tells us, is there any sign of levelling up happening and why could Hull become a home working hotspot? Keep listening to find out. First, though, I'm delighted to be joined by an MP who's made a real name for herself in the four years since being elected to Parliament. For most people, the 2019 general election in the north of England was associated with the huge influx of Conservative MPs in areas which used to be Labour strongholds, places like Wakefield, Bishop Auckland and Lee. But in Warrington North, there was a new Labour MP on the scene, Charlotte Nichols, the daughter of Merseyside-born union leader Jed Nichols, and elected with a 1,500 vote majority at the age of 28. She's served as Shadow Equalities Minister under Keir Starmer, as well as briefly being part of the Jeremy Corbyn administration. But her success and high profile has come at a cost. It emerged recently that she gets more toxic tweets than any MP in the North West and attributes her suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder on the abuse that she's received. And last week, with more sexual assault allegations emerging against a Labour MP, she's spoken out against the rotten culture in Westminster and suggested that there have been times when Labour cannot keep our own house in order. But in Parliament, she has got plenty of big issues on her plate. She's a chair of the all-party parliamentary groups on issues as diverse as pubs, nuclear and MS. And last week, she led a debate on how wrestling is licensed and whether it should be treated as a sport or just theatre. So a whole host of things to talk about. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. No, thank you for having me on. No problem at all. So we're probably three quarters of the way through your first term as an MP. And it's been an insane few years of politics, hasn't it? Like uh, so, so much has happened. What's it been like being in that maelstrom as someone entering Westminster politics for the first time? How have you found it? I mean, I think right from the very get-go, it's been a totally bizarre experience. I mean, six weeks before the general election, there wasn't even a vacancy in the seat I now represent. I'd never had any particular desire to go into politics. Um, It was a friend who actually encouraged me and said when the vacancy came up that they thought it'd be something I'd be good at. And I thought about it for a little bit um, and kind of chucked an application in thinking that it would be a funny story to tell the grandkids that, you know, once I almost became a Labour candidate back in those halcyon days of 2019. Uh, But, you know, to my surprise, I was selected a few days later and then elected about a month after that. And from the minute that I arrived in Westminster, having not really had any time to think about what the job might look like, what it might be like to be an MP, because, of course, I've been thrown straight into the kind of tail end of the general election campaign. So I was very focused on the campaign. When I arrived, you know, it was it's obviously a very strange place, very um, kind of grand and uh, but also at the same time kind of falling down lots of mice uh, (laughs) paint peeling and all this sort of thing so it's it's the real balance of those two things and lots of systems and processes that I was having to wrap my head around you know what is a statutory instrument how do we even vote Uh, you know where's my office and you know all of these sorts of things that you find in a new job anyway but of course within a few weeks of our arrival you know, cases started to emerge of a novel virus in Wuhan in China. And from then on, 
life has never really gone back to normal. You know, I often joke that we haven't had a precedented time since we arrived and even things that came much later on from the pandemic, including the passing away of our longest serving monarch in the country. Well, of course, none of us here in Westminster knew what happens when that happens because there was no one that was around the last time that this had happened. So it's it's felt very much like flying by the seat of your pants for the last four years. Um, but yeah, it's it's an experience unlike any other, I think. Yeah, it sounds it. And I'm always intrigued about the kinds of issues as an MP you hear most about from your constituents. I mean, is it is it things like, you know, big national topics that are top of the news agenda, like Boris Johnson and Partygate or what Labour and Keir Starmer is doing nationally? Or, or, or is it mostly super local issues like my bin's not being collected or what are you doing about this this road or this bypass or whatever? It's a real mix on any given day and in any given surgery session that you run. You know, you'll have cases that can be very complex, things that you're liaising with multiple different agencies from the police to schools and all of these sorts of things to help resolve an individual issue for a constituent or their family, Um, you know, particularly on things like visa appeals and things like that. But you can also have people that turn up to your surgery to tell you that, you know, the council hasn't swept their street recently or that there's a pigeon trapped in the netting at Warrington Central Station. And actually, the lovely thing about being an MP is that there is nothing that people can't come to you about. And what you think your day is going to look like, you know, when you go into the office of a morning and some of the issues and things that you've had to wrap your head around over the course of the day are two completely different things. I mean, I do find... Certainly the thing that I think we've had the most contact about ever was during the pandemic um, when Dominic Cummings went for his infamous eye test in Barnard Castle. Um, I think I had hundreds of emails about that and they were all individually written emails by people as well. So it wasn't a campaign email that, you know, people can click on a website and it'll kind of generate a letter to their MP. This was people writing to me individually specifically to tell me about how watching this on the news had made them feel about some of the sacrifices they'd had to make. Um, I find animal welfare is one of the things that I get probably the most contact about on a policy level, um, whether it's to do with the kept animals bill, looking after pets, um, you know, stopping puppy smuggling, making sure that we've got high welfare standards for imports, whether it's for pets or for, you know, things like meat. Um, but it, as I said, it's people can contact you about such a broad range of things that this is how I started to get interested in things like drugs policy reform, uh, particularly around things like psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms for people with PTSD. Or people will get in contact with you about um, you know, war crimes legislation or things that you know, you didn't really know anything about before someone got in contact with you and asked you about it and told you why it was important to them. And then it suddenly becomes one of the things that you're campaigning on in Parliament. I was going to ask you about psilocybin, because obviously I'm guessing at least part of the reason you're interested in that is links in with one of the more difficult aspects of being an MP. Now, listeners won't have heard this, but the, the BBC analysed millions of tweets aimed at MPs over a six-week period, and they found that uh, 130,000 could be classed as toxic. And you personally received 11,000 messages in that period, 8.3% of which were found to be toxic, which is the five, fifth highest in the whole country. And I think you said online, you, you said that some of those online messages had spilled over into potential threats of violence. And you said, I didn't have PTSD when I was elected. And that's the reason I now have to live with it. I mean, I think personally myself I would really struggle to cope with such an onslaught of hostility either online or in person I mean how do you manage that on a day-to-day a day-to-day basis yeah I mean the, the online stuff in many ways is a lot easier because you know you can turn your notifications off and you can you know choose to not read your emails for the afternoon and things and you know take a bit of a break away from it but as i sort of tried to get across in the interview that I'd done with the BBC. It's less so about what's said online per se, 
and more about the spillover effect into what that means in real life. Um, and certainly um, in terms of my PTSD, you know, that came about as a result of a violent assault um, that I almost don't think would have happened if I, one, wasn't an MP at all, but two, there wasn't this feeling that, you know, MPs aren't, uh, you know, people and humans and that, you know, don't have the rights to um, sort of safety and freedom and things as any other citizen deserves to have, um, that, you know, somehow we're kind of asking for it. Um, and, you know, there are times that it is difficult. I think the, the worst ones for me, because I've, after a few years in the job, you do kind of develop a bit of a rhino skin on this stuff. And there's even ones that come in where they're obviously trying to be offensive and I'm finding them quite amusing, which is not obviously what they were hoping to get across. But it's things where people involve, you know, your family or your friends and things like that. It does actually change the way that you use things online. So, you know, I, I very rarely now, even if it's a photo of me with one of my friends, I very rarely tag that friend in it if it's a picture that I've got on Instagram because I don't want people then going and sending my friend abuse for having been with me and it's those sorts of things that you know I shouldn't have to worry about what I put online particularly for stuff that isn't even political um that you know that might invite some sort of level of um you know abuse or worse threats of violence or actual violence towards some of the people around me because of course I've chosen this job and um, you know these things shouldn't come with the job but you know at the moment it does but certainly they haven't chosen this and it's not fair that they get kind of implicated as well. Talking about PTSD I mean is it people who don't know that much about it I mean is, is it something that sort of is constantly there in the background or does it sort of flare up sometimes and then other times it's it's sort of you can you can kind of live, live with it how, how, how does it manifest itself yeah it, it kind of waxes and wanes and there are times where um you know it's more similar to something like depression where it's you know that feeling that getting out of bed and going about your day is just sort of too difficult um and it feels like climbing Everest to you know get out of bed get a shower and leave the house in the morning there are times where it's almost like having a lot of your emotions far too close to the surface so if you feel a little bit angry about something you know you're uh, <laughs> and if you're feeling a little bit sad about something you know you're hysterically crying and it's kind of it, it, it kind of heightens everything but the, uh, the bit that makes it most difficult to live with is um effectively when you get triggered um and I, I find that word is kind of overused quite a lot on the internet now to refer to things that aren't ptsd um but if you're if you have ptsd and there's something that triggers you um you know the results can be catastrophic I mean you know I've had times where it's been effectively a kind of six hour long blackout and um, you know I've just I've lost that time completely I'll have been sat in a meeting and it's like I've just completely checked out and I'm just not there anymore because um, it's a it's a defense mechanism almost that your body does to keep you safe um, and you know it's when this real feelings of Kind of anxiety or dread becomes so acute that your instinct if you see you know a train coming or what have you is to put yourself in front of it to make it stop because it's so present and so that in the moment that feels like the rational thing even though you know you're not suicidal and of course you would never want to do something like that but it's it makes you feel really not in control of your own life, your own day, your own choices, because, of course, you can have all of the kind of self-care and therapy and medication and things like that in place in order to be able to manage a condition like PTSD long term. But you kind of can't account for when there's going to be something that sets you off and that triggers you because you've got to be out existing in the world. Um, and you kind of you can't protect yourself from those things necessarily. Yeah, it sounds very very tough. And there's a drug, as you mentioned, called psilocybin, which is psychedelic, has psychedelic properties. It comes from 
magic mushrooms and it appears to have antidepressant and anti-anxiety effects and could help people who have PTSD, but it's currently classed as an illegal controlled drug in, in this country. You were speaking in a Westminster debate recently and said that there was a moral and economic imperative for the government to review restrictions on psilocybin so that it could potentially be used for medical research more than it is at the moment. I mean, do you think that's an argument you're likely to win? And why, 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 does, it, why does it matter that we, that we have greater access to this, this drug? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways, you know, this um, decision is somewhat inevitable. I mean, we've already seen Australia having licensed it, not just for additional research, but actually for prescribing from next month. Um, we are seeing in the US, there is a decision that's expected to be taken by the FDA next year in 2024. And according to what is in the most recent budget here, at the point at which it becomes legalized in the US, we would automatically be legalizing it here. So my question to the government is, rather than waiting on decisions by foreign governments and you know their scientists and their researchers to make this decision and then we, we kind of follow along, if it's something that is looking inevitable, why aren't we proactively making the decision for ourselves about whether or not it's right. And it's it's interesting one because there's there is a lot of research around giving psilocybin as a compound um, to people as the compound itself. But one of the things that I find particularly fascinating is in the, I believe it's the 1950s, a guy called Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD for the first time. And it was by accident and he got a bit of it on his finger and effectively had a massive psychedelic trip on his way home from the lab that day. And so the next day went into the lab to try to work out, you know, why he'd got so high off, uh, you know, this compound. And all of the research and development that they did into LSD was actually what allowed us to understand for the first time serotonin and dopamine in the brain which then led to the development of all of the modern class of antidepressant drugs known as SSRIs. So, you know, things like Prozac, citalopram, sertraline, and so on, the most commonly prescribed antidepressants today only exist because Albert Hoffman accidentally synthesized LSD. So the more research that we allow into psilocybin, it might not even be psilocybin that people end up getting given in terms of understanding what it's doing in the brain and how it's doing that and how it's helping, we might find that you don't even need the trip, for example, in order to see some of the beneficial effects. I mean, we're not yet at a place where we know fully what it's doing and why yet, um, but certainly there's been clinical studies that have shown far greater promise in treating addiction disorders, treating depression, treating PTSD than some of these more traditional methods we've been using for the last sort of 60 years or so. And at a time when we have a mental health crisis in this country, where people often can't access the support that they need, when suicide is one of the biggest killers of under 40s, particularly for men, I think that we should be doing everything we can, not just for people's dignity as individuals, but for the fact that there are many people who might feel like because their depression is so acute that they can't work or that no one would want them in a workplace or that there's not something they can contribute. When actually, if you could fix their underlying mental health condition, get them to a point that it's manageable, you know, they're able to participate in society much more freely as well. So even if you look at it just as a pure economics argument and you take out the, the moral argument, I think there's still a really strong case for it. That's really interesting. We'll see how that how that develops. Now, I wanted to ask you about the, the rotten culture in Westminster, because it's, it's a, an issue, I guess, that for a lot of people who aren't in Westminster, feels like a, a foreign concept, but it is very important. And you've done a lot, a few bits of media in the last few days, in the light of the case of this uh, Swansea West MP, Geraint Davies, who's been suspended following allegations of sexual harassment. And I was uh, astonished to hear that when you first became an MP, you were given a list of 30 names of parliamentarians that you really ought to stay away from because of the fear of sexual harassment. And I think 
looking at it from a perspective of someone outside Westminster, it seems amazing that such behaviour could be so widely tolerated in 2023. And I'm just interested in your view about what it is about this particular institution that allows or encourages this behaviour in a way that wouldn't be tolerated in most other settings. I think one of the key parts of the problem, and a lot of this goes back to it, is this idea that Westminster is in some way exceptional. So, you know, by virtue of being MPs and the role and status that we have within, you know, our kind of democratic structure means that, uh, you know, we should be kind of separate and different from the way that any other workplace operates. So that's kind of embedded itself in all sorts of different ways down the years, right down to things like each MP is their own employer. So I'm an employer of six people, um, but there's no, for my staff, there's no HR function kind of beyond me. I am their employer. Each six, so if you add in all the 650 MPs, 650 different sets of working practices, 650 different sets of, you know, contracts, ways of treating people, all of these sorts of things, people that are better or worse managers and things than others, um, you know, people that are nicer or more horrible to the people that work for them. There's kind of no real accountability there. We're all ourselves self-employed. So again, we're not responsible to parliament. We're not responsible to our parties. And a lot of the time, you know, we are ultimately obviously accountable to our electorates in the constituencies we represent. But if your MP is mostly misbehaving when they're down in Westminster, and behaves quite well for the other half of the week where they're back home, hypothetically speaking, how are those constituents back in the town that they represent meant to know what they're getting up to for the rest of the week? So that that kind of, there's a level of like distancing of these things from the people that are actually able to do anything about it. I think all the parties and parliament itself has sort of long had this, uh, tendency to kind of hide behind structures that are failing. So they might have received a series of reports around someone, but they would kind of say, oh, well, if, if you've not gone to the police, then, you know, there's nothing we can do. When that's never been the case, because that's never the case in any other workplace. You know, if you worked in a school or a doctor's surgery or, you know, an office and, you know, someone said to their manager about, you know, a serious case like this, they would be supported in coming forward. That person would probably face some level of paid suspension while it was investigated. Safeguarding measures would be put in place to keep those two people apart from each other while it was resolved. You know, these kind of processes would happen. But in Parliament, because of all the, you know, different employers under the same building and everyone trying to say that it's everyone else's responsibility to do something about this issue, it's kind of become no one's to solve and you know we have had movement in recent years with things like bringing in the independent complaints and grievance scheme which for the first time established a place that people could go to in parliament to sort of make complaints but what we are seeing is that in those sorts of cases they're taking you know up to two years to resolve and in that time you know that person might get a four or five day unpaid suspension from work as the kind of punishment so a lot of people will think if it's something that's happened to them that you know even if they get a positive outcome in the case it's probably not worth doing and for the people that are the perpetrators they kind of feel like the risk of getting caught is so low that it doesn't really act as any kind of deterrent on that behavior but Ultimately, and I say this all the time, you know, these things, it's sexual misconduct and sexual abuse and assault. It's not about sex, it's about power. And when you have a building that is effectively the centre of, you know, British power and some of the most powerful people in the country in here, mixed in with some of the people that have the least ability to speak up when something's wrong, 
you know, unpaid interns, researchers, visitors that come into the building, constituents who are very vulnerable and have got a problem that they need help with. It's almost, there's nothing inevitable about it, but if you don't put any of those checks and balances in place and you allow that culture to fester and continue, then it's something that you are going to see. It seems to me that given the topics we've dwelt on a little bit today about being a a politician, it sounds like there's quite a lot of aspects of life in Westminster that is pretty tough. And given your given your experiences of the last four years, I'm wondering, like, do you do you still get satisfaction from the job? Like, do you, do you feel proud to be an MP? And like, would you what would you say to other young women who might be thinking about entering the world of politics, given you know, everything that you've you've said and we've discussed? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things it is, I can't think of another job that's like it. And it's one of those things that every day is something completely different. I mean, just as a, I think it was last Wednesday as a pretty good example of this, you know, starting out the day with leading a Westminster Hall debate on home office licensing and professional wrestling by councils. Uh, You know, Gene Simmons was then there in uh, PMQs as a guest of Ian Paisley, even more bizarrely, and then I've met with the Dogs Trust, and then I've met with some urologists and researchers and people that were looking into cannabis-based medicines for paediatric epilepsy, um, some from all over the world, and all of these sort of things had happened over the course of a single day. That was just one day in Westminster. And I think if you're someone that you know, really needs a sort of really set routine and structure and things always working on time and going to plan. You know, whether you're a man or a woman, I would say that maybe Westminster might not be the place for you on that front because it's, you know, nothing ever runs to time or to plan in this place. But if you're someone that thrives on the kind of and I don't want to say chaos because it, it you know it isn't necessarily but it's you know that that kind of change and that difference and being able to kind of take a small idea or something that someone said to you in a constituency surgery one week and then to be able to kind of turn that into you know a national campaign and a law that you've had changed and things it's there's, there's not another job that you can do that and I think the bit that I particularly enjoy um, and particularly in the constituency I represent is what your job can mean to other people, which sounds like a really odd way of phrasing it. But as a kind of example, you know, we have some schools that have some quite disadvantaged pupils and these pupils might not have had a lot of people tell them throughout their life that, you know, they're good and they're smart and they can go on to, achieve good things like the the kind of role models adults that they get this positive feedback from can be quite limited and so because they see that you're their mp and they know you as someone that is on the telly and in the local paper even if they don't really understand what it is that you do when you give them some kind of positive affirmation or feedback about you know a project that they've worked on or you know you tell them that you're proud of them for something that they've done you can really see the way that they're kind of chests puff out and this sort of, you know, and what that means to them. And again, the the level of reward almost that you get from that on a personal level, you know, I hope kind of demystify the role and have it as something that feels closer to and more connected to the people I represent. That is a really lovely thing. And the amount of people that tell me things like, you know, oh, I've never met another I've never met an MP before. Or like, you know, oh I didn't think you know, I thought MPs had to look a certain way or I thought they had to be a certain way. And being able to tell 18-year-olds that, you know, they don't have to have had a certain background to come and do the job. You know, it's about what values you've got and do you want to help and these sorts of things. And then some of them saying that actually they think they might go into politics when they're older. It's all that kind of, um, you know, I, I want to make it something that isn't some ivory towers down in London, that it's something that means something to people on the street where I represent and they can kind of see when they've taken things to me what I've then done with them to be able to follow through ah okay democracy works and you know you can being engaged in that process 
has an outcome. You know, that's that's the bit that I'm really trying to build. Charlotte Nichols, thank you so much for talking to me today. So what's the big battleground likely to be at the next election? Above stopping the boats and even the NHS. It's the economy, stupid, in the immortal words of Bill Clinton. Sky high inflation rates mean our money's not going as far as it used to, as wage increases are outstripped by rising prices and we're all having to cut back with many families in the north really struggling. But is there an end in sight now for the UK's economic pain? And will people living in the north see the same kind of recovery as those in London and the South East? As a wider point, are the efforts by the government to level up and tackle regional inequalities having any impact at all on the economic prospects of towns, cities and villages in our region? We've got a great expert guest to answer those questions and more in the shape of Simon French, the chief economist of Panmure Gordon, an investment bank with a big office in Leeds. Originally from Hull, he has had a distinguished government career, including as chief of staff to the government's chief operating officer and had a central role in implementing the coalition government spending reforms between 2010 and 2014. So, Simon, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Rob. What an intro. I can only disappoint from this point forward, but uh, looking forward. I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you won't. (laughs) Um, So I know you've, you and others, obviously, have been keeping a keen eye on what's going on under the bonnet of the UK's economy. And it's something so many of us are going to be affected by. And as we're recording this podcast, UK wages have apparently surged at their fastest rate on record outside of the pandemic, reinforcing fears that interest rates will have to rise further. So I'm really interested to know from your perspective, how you see the economic recovery, if there's going to be one going in the next few months in the run up to the election, as I mentioned, are the signs looking positive in terms of the cost of living crisis and how the government is sort of doing in terms of steadying the ship and uh, help helping us uh, you know help helping our prospects yeah so it's a very good summary of where we are at and let me add some color as to what to expect over the next probably year to 18 months in the run up to the next general election um the first thing to say and it is an important um checkpoint on the economy is that things look far more positive sat here today in June 2023 than they did, let's say, in November or December 2022, just six, seven months ago. Um, and why is that? Well, the the gas price particularly, which has been so key for so many of the listeners to this podcast in terms of their energy bills, but also the costs of, of doing business for entrepreneurs across the north of England. Um, those gas prices have come down dramatically since the back end of last year. Now, many listeners haven't yet felt it in their energy bills that they get from their supplier, but they will starting in July, on the 1st of July, and then again in September. Those energy bills, the average we're paying for each kilowatt hour of electricity and gas will come down and come down quite substantially. And therefore, households will start to feel the rate of price increases, their disposable income at the end of the month will start to increase. And that's the good news story versus where we were going into last winter. But, and you knew there was a buck coming, didn't you? There's still a real challenge of the fact that prices are up between 20 and 25% since the start of the pandemic across the full basket of things that people buy. Um, And these are pretty challenging conditions, particularly for those on fixed incomes and low incomes to navigate because they're concentrated on things that it's quite difficult to substitute out of food and energy, um, quite difficult to change your consumption of that. But so overall, summarizing all of that, things have got better, but it's still a really challenging economic backdrop for businesses and households across the north of England to navigate. One thing I'm always interested in with, uh, you know, inflation and cost of living is the extent to which it's felt differently around the country. And I saw some statistics, I think it was from the Centre for Cities, which suggested that there's areas of, uh, there's a bit of a north-south divide in this respect. And I think they singled out places in Lancashire like Blackburn and Blackpool, places like that, which are, uh, inflation is higher there than it is in the southeast for a variety of a variety of reasons. I mean, yes. is, is it the case that 
as things hopefully get better, it, it won't be getting better at the same rate everywhere in the country. That's correct. And that Centre for Cities analysis is, is accurate that we do know that across all households in the UK, they spend about between 10 to 15 percent on food and energy. But for the poorest 10 percent of households, which unfortunately some of the areas you describe are in the poorest constituencies across the UK, it's closer to 30, 35, often 40 percent. And so the fact that those items have gone up the furthest, energy bills more than doubling, food prices up, well, just 19% in just the last year alone, that disproportionately impacts the the spending power of those households on what we just call discretionary spending, um, you know, uh, things that outside, if you like, the things you have to buy, which which often is linked to uh, well-being, um, people's uh, happiness levels, because GDP, gross domestic product, the output of the UK economy can be quite an abstract concept for a lot of people. But actually making it real is how much money do you have at the end of the month in order to do things that feel like um, leisure, think, feel like luxuries, and, and the degree to which those constituencies you mentioned with lower average incomes that spend a higher proportion on those staples, that means that recovery is going to be more sluggish in those areas. Which I guess brings us on to the whole topic of levelling up and regional inequalities, which has obviously been a uh, major focus for politics uh, for a few years. I don't know, I feel like the, the focus on it is perhaps waning slightly at the moment. But in terms of, I'd be, I'd be interested to know whether what your view on whether there's any evidence that the northern economy has been leveled up and you know the progress toward uh, we're progressing towards uh, a state of affairs where the economy of in northern towns can compete and things are more equal with with london and the southeast is that is that happening in any way that you can see at the risk of sitting on the fence and i desperately don't want to sit on the fence not least because i'll get splinters but the the point is the data's pretty mixed um there are real bright points there is data out in the last few hours, actually, recording this podcast about jobs growth in the north and northeast of England that has outstripped the national average. That's encouraging. Um, my own analysis on northern companies that are listed on the stock exchange, they've outperformed over the last two to three years. That's encouraging. Um, we're also seeing signs that the transition to net zero and the onshoring of industrial and manufacturing capacity from uh, away from the rest of the world as you know the, the global supply chains slightly shorten as a result of the pandemic disproportionately affects the north there's the good news but if i also look at PMIs, these are called purchasing manager indexes. They're your monthly, if you like, health check on how fast each regional economy is growing. London is the fastest growing part of the UK economy at the pre at present. And we still have a long dated gap in productivity where London and the Southeast is way out ahead and a few months, a few quarters, even a few years is going to make relatively little dent in what is a big gap in productivity uh, levels between you know, uh, the, the economy of the Southeast and London and the North. So yes, bright spots, but the idea that the Northern economy has been leveled up based on uh, last few years of you know, political attention, uh, I, I think doesn't stand up to scrutiny. That's really interesting. And I suppose uh, even you know, the, the staunchest conservative supporters or levelling up would admit that it is a project that w will take years, if not decades, to fully uh, come to fruition. I mean, just, just to go back to the good news that you were talking about, that northern public listed companies are outperforming UK public companies uh, since the start of 2020. I mean, that seems very encouraging. But what, why do you think that that might be? Yes. So we have seen a recovery, at least in its initial stages from the pandemic, that was driven by manufacturing, the, the built environment, the, the type of economic 
um, strength that the North has disproportionate to the South. The South is, it's, it's an oversimplification to say the South is a services-based economy and the North is a manufacturing economy. But the relative shares of that economic activity are, are larger in the case of services in the South, London and the Southeast and manufacturing in the North. And therefore, the fact that during the pandemic, particularly um, when a lot of services-based activity wasn't possible, a lot of the earnings growth amongst companies was those who could supply um, goods, uh, manufactured goods, construction goods, the type of activity that households were demanding. There's a bit of a DIY boom, a bit of a consumer durables boom, and a lot of those companies uh, were disproportionately affected in the North. So I think that that drove the the outperformance. It's encouraging that even as the services-based economy has opened up, and indeed, that's the part of the economy that is now booming, you still have that outperformance by, by northern um, northern companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, and that is the point of, if you like, going back to my, my day job at an investment bank, the idea of getting capital investment into all parts of the United Kingdom has to remain a priority through the cycle. doesn't matter whether Labour are in charge, doesn't matter whether the Tories are in charge, doesn't matter whether there's a coalition. It's that commitment to identifying um, capital, both public sector capital and, and my industry, private sector capital, going into those parts of the economy that can sustainably level up living standards, uh, economic potential across the whole country. I mean, there's a uh, obviously in the uh, a couple of budgets ago, Rishi Sunak unveiled the um, the UK Investment Bank, didn't he? Which is based has its headquarters in Leeds and was set up precisely with that with that aim in mind. I mean, is is that a useful addition to? To, to what we've been talking about, will, will, will that will that have an impact? Do you think? I think it will, um, if only just to provide some, if you like, anecdotal evidence. Um, I was in seeing uh, officials at the Treasury a few weeks ago, and they specifically referenced um, that bank uh, based in Leeds as the. Um, the vehicle that they want to use to, to funnel investment uh, into the wider UK economy, but clearly its footprint. And I've written quite a lot about this, and I know you've read some of it, Rob, about the importance of place, the importance of um, having a footprint, a physical footprint in the north of England, um, which we as a business have done, which um, you know, the government has increasingly tried to do with its own functions, both in Leeds and Manchester um, and around the north of England, because place really matters. In theory, it shouldn't matter. In practice, it does matter. And, and so I am encouraged by that. Now, of course, there has to be long-term commitment to uh, channeling that capital into uh, um, investment projects. And, and any objective assessment can see that as a country, we've underinvested in our capital stock for 30, 40 years, but disproportionately underinvested in uh, the north of England. Um, that needs probably for 30, 40 years to rebalance in the opposite direction before we can claim you know, job done. I should probably explain to our listeners who don't know what the UK Infrastructure Bank is. So it was set up by Bishy Sunak when he was Chancellor. It's part of the government's plan to reach net zero carbon by 2050 to support economic growth and in, in regional and local sectors. And basically its task is to invest in areas like renewables, carbon capture and storage, and it will hopefully provide low rate loans to mayors and councils to fund projects and its headquarters is in in Leeds. So there were quite high, high hopes for that. And I'm going to ask you about um, something that I saw you tweeting about uh, earlier this this week, which is an interesting concept that we were talking about on the podcast last week with our uh, our guest, Ruth Hannon, who's from the People's Powerhouse Movement. And it, uh, it's the concept of universal basic income because there's a trial going on with that at the moment. Uh, a think tank is recruiting people in Jarrow in, in the northeast, and they're, get, they're, they're all going to get £1,600 a month, uh, no strings attached to spend on whatever they want. And Ruth on our podcast last week was saying how this could, you know, obviously we, we want, want to see how it's going to work, but the, the hope is that it could sort of provide a different economic model 
and you know help with some of the problems like you know zero hours employment and people falling through the gaps of i say social security system but i'm imagining as an economist you might have a different view on universal basic income as a as an idea could it could it work in your view no um and that sounds too dismissive and it probably is too dismissive because of course um the the definition of universal basic income is hotly disputed and the design of how you would give out universal basic income uh is uh disputed i mean um many of the proponents of universal basic income might say well, we'll give £1,600 to everybody across the country, but from millionaires, billionaires, we will tax it at you know, near 100% to make sure that they don't, in effect, get a £1,600 uplift. But then it, you've almost taken away the very definition of universal basic income because it isn't universal in terms of the income. Um, and so what economists call that is a is a deadweight loss. You're giving a lot of public money because this is ultimately coming from well, either tax revenue or, or borrowing, but it's ultimately a, a liability to, to, to households and giving it to people who on a means tested basis really don't need it. And we call that deadweight, uh, deadweight. And you have to recognize that by doing introducing deadweight, that is money that otherwise could be spent on uh, you know, more targeted uh, social care, health care, education, comes out of other parts of public spending. And so my, if you like, my cynicism around universal basic income is that most of the sensible uh, proponents of it quickly claw back a lot, lot of that universality and therefore really quite quickly doesn't actually do what it says on the tin. Uh, I guess that debate will uh, run and run, and we'll be interested to see what the results are from the uh, uh, the study. And um, the last thing I'll ask you, Simon, you're you're from Hull uh, originally. I, I don't know how how often you you get get back there, but I'm I'm interested in your view on how your home city is is doing. Obviously, it was the city of culture not not that long ago. It's got some big, uh, you know, Hull and the Humber region have some really big strengths in terms of green energy and they've got you know the 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 awesome power of the the river humber and everything that comes comes with it i mean are you hopeful as as an economist about all and its prospects to answer your question the first one you said how often do i get back three four times a year um i i have a stronger affiliation to my home city and i'm very proud to be to be from hull in terms of its economic advantages there's one you've already mentioned, which is its potential, and actually its increasingly realized potential as a green energy you know, powerhouse. And I, I don't use that uh, flippantly. You know, the Europe's largest offshore wind farm built off, uh, you know, the Hornsea um, project uh, off the Holderness coast is hugely relevant to the path of the UK to net zero and the potential to. to bolt that green hydrogen potential with a hydrogen industry, which then in, in effect gives it the storage capacity to smooth out you know, what potentially can produce a lot of supply at times when we don't always need it, but we want to store it for times when the wind isn't blowing. There's the potential for Hull to be at the absolute uh, epicenter, actually, of the UK's net zero journey. So that's very encouraging. The other one that you didn't mention, which I've started to get involved with, with one of the local Labour MPs from Hull, is the potential for Hull as a remote working capital. Over the last two to three years, um, we have seen across not just the UK, but across the world, a greater adaptation of remote working. And Hull, uh, famously, uh, has uh, is the only city in the UK with 100% uh, you know, fast broadband, um, super fast broadband that from the legacy of KCOM, Kingston Communications, and the famous white telephone boxes. That legacy uh, enables... That, just, it- just, to stop, just to stop you there, Sam, just for people who don't know. So Hull, uniquely in the country has its uh, has its sort of its own uh sort of independent 
telecoms it does, system, yeah. isn't it? That, that's, what, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, right? absolutely. And why is that relevant? Well, it was a bit of an um, anachronism when there were white telephone boxes rather than red telephone boxes. Yeah, I'm showing my age now, aren't I, Rob? But um, now it provides a combination of uh, by any objective measure, uh, a low cost of living in terms of housing, it, excellent connectivity in terms of its uh, broadband and communications, and therefore as a epicenter of somewhere to you know, remote work, uh, you know, with employers based either in higher cost parts of the north in terms of Leeds, Manchester, or indeed from London, uh, but have connectivity into it, both remotely and through its transport network, there is a big opportunity as well for Hull to address what for a long time economists have worried about, particularly economists looking at regional disparities, the brain drain, the brain drain of very, very talented uh, individuals who leave Hull with great earnings potential and go and work and live in other parts of the country, can they potentially, at least at the margin, be able to do that from Hull? I think the pandemic, one of the legacies, and there have been some terrible legacies of the pandemic, but one of the positive legacies is potentially that makes that more possible with Hull at the vanguard. That's really interesting because I I guess when, I mean, one of the things about Hull is it's, you know, it's relative isolation geographically. It's sort of a bit out on on a limb, isn't it? But it sounds like from what you're saying, that could be almost a strength rather than a a weakness. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Well, high hopes for Hull. Uh, It's always a good good to end on a positive note. Um, Simon French from Pamela Gordon. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Rob. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.